if you know me at all at this point, you probably know that I am a fan of the writings of Paul. I feel that he asked good questions and often gave good answers as well. And he was particularly good. He was gifted at giving illustrations, breaking things down. He was able to view the whole picture, you know, get a, get a bird's eye view of things, yet also stop and magnify certain particulars when needed. And that, that, that's a gift. You know, when there are, usually when you think about out in, in the world, any sort of scientists that we know their names, the only reason we know their names is because they tend to have this sort of gift where they can take very complex ideas, but break it down in a way that you can see the, the bird's eye view and understand it and grasp it, but then go down into the particulars and start expanding upon that in layman's terms. And I, I feel that Paul was able to do that. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but what about Romans? That, <laughs> Yes, there, there are some difficult writings as well, but stick with it. Stick with it. Keep, keep reading, Paul. You know, he also had a very unique worldview and life experience because he knew what it was like to work against God. I mean, if you've read the book of Acts, you see that at the start there, he was causing a ruckus in the early church. I mean, he was having people drug out of their homes and imprisoned and sometimes killed. He's, he's holding the guy's coats as they stone Stephen to death. So he knew what it was like to work against God, but was also then later thankful for the opportunity to work for God. He was able to see things from both sides. And it's clear in his writings that he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. And there's this cluster of little books in the New Testament, which were all letters written by Paul to Christians throughout the known world. And one of those letters, these little letters, we refer to it as the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, just a few chapters, not very long. And Paul, he writes this letter while he's in prison. While he's in prison, that flame in his heart is, is always going. It doesn't matter if he's in prison or shipwrecked, snake bitten. I mean, he just keeps going, keeps going. And so he writes this while imprisoned. And I believe the main thrust of this letter is to show what this Christian spiritual walk looks like, at least what it should look like. But he goes about showing that in a very intriguing and interesting way. Paul does not get into practical application until chapter four. Now, just as a reminder, there were no chapter divisions in Paul's letters. Those were added after the fact. But we still have Paul writing until halfway through his letter to get to the practical application, and this is not typical, Paul. Not typical. 
He tends to get to the point rather quickly and then spends the rest of the letter expounding upon that point and giving those illustrations that he's so gifted with to to make the point clear, to make it stick. Yet that isn't what we find in his letter to those Christians in Ephesus. So this begs the question, is there another point that Paul is trying to make besides just practical application? So in order to answer that, we need to back up a little bit. The Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to his friends. These are, a lot of these people are people he knows personally. His friends and fellow Christians in the city of Ephesus. And for the first half of the letter, he doesn't tell them anything that they should do. But what he does say is what they are. He says that they are blessed, adopted, redeemed. He says that they are forgiven, included, marked. He says they are sealed, alive, and raised up. And he goes on and on and on, exhorting them, offering words of encouragement, reminding them of who they are in Christ, announcing who they are and what God has done for them and how his spirit dwells in their midst. Now, many of the Jews, they would resonate with these words. They would have known a lot of these things already. They would have been reading this and saying, yes, yes, uh uh-huh, I knew that, I agree, amen. They were God's chosen people throughout the entire Old Testament period. That was their mindset. We are God's chosen people. Yeah, we know this about ourselves. But Paul was not just reiterating this concept for his Jewish Christian audience. Because the the, the Christian church is a lot more open, a lot greater, a lot bigger. He wanted to make sure that the Gentile believers also knew that he was speaking to them. Hey, y'all, I'm speaking to you too. All the Christians, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your age or your gender, your nationality, your culture. If you are a follower of Christ, I'm writing this letter to you, reminding you of these things. And he makes this comment in chapter three, verse six, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And you'll notice throughout Paul's writings that he usually makes a point to take a little aside and give illustrations like this to remind the Gentile believers that they are part of this too. And to also remind the Jewish Christians that the Gentiles were a part of this too. Paul here is talking to all the Christian believers in Ephesus. He is speaking to those with a Jewish background and a Gentile background, and this echoes his same sentiments in his letter to the church in Galatia. When he stated that there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer Jew or Gentile, we are all Galatians 3, 28, 
one in Christ. We're all one in Christ. So throughout the first half of his letter to the Ephesians, he keeps telling them who they are and what's been done for them. And then finally in chapter 4, he begins to tell them what it practically looks like for them to live out this new reality in their everyday life. First, he tells them who they are. Then, he tells them what to do. But why? Why does he do it in this way? I believe it's because the gospel message is first and foremost an announcement of who you are. It's about your identity, about the new word that has been spoken about you, the love that has always been yours. Maybe you just didn't know it. It reminds me of this quote from Ty Gibson from the Arise Bible Training School. He said, gospel means good news, not good advice. News is a report about what's been done. Advice is what you ought to do. The gospel isn't about what you ought to do. The gospel is about what God in Christ has already done, and therefore it's news. The good news is truth, that God loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. That God cares about you so much that he was willing to leave his high position in heaven and to come down here and to become a mortal human man. That God places so much value on you, on you, that he was willing to pay the ultimate price. Paul touches on these things in his letter to the Ephesians. And I believe that this is his way of of waging a premeditated war against legalism, against a works-based religion, a religion where we start to get puffed up and start taking some of the credit. He hints at it in chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we accept Christ, we become a new creation, a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes that. And one of our purposes as this new creation is to manifest good works. That's part of it. But if you start with instructions and commands, people might be mistaken into thinking that God loves us because of what we do or how religious or how moral or how good we are. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the announcement of who God insists that you are. You're a child of God, not because of how great you are, but because God has all kinds of children and you are one of them. So Paul here, he, he hints at good works, but he doesn't go all the way into the application until he makes sure that these 
Ephesian Christians know their identity, who they are. A Christian's identity is rooted in Christ, not in his or her works. A Christian's value is rooted in the price that Christ placed upon our lives. Our value and identity in Christ comes first and foremost. Part of appreciating your new identity It also comes from being able to reflect back and remember your old identity. As Paul gets into the meat of his letter, he takes a moment in chapter five to remind the Ephesian Christians of who they once were and who they now are. Ephesians 5, 8, it says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I love that. I love that. You were once, but now you are. As Pastor Kilgore likes to say, those words will preach. Those words will preach. Those words bring thankfulness to the believer and also bring hope to the lost. When we as believers remember how lost, how broken, how unworthy we were, and now we see our true identity, we see the truth that we are found and loved and transformed it makes us fall even more in love with Jesus. What he did and what it means. And when a lost person also remembers who you once were and what they now are, and they see that change in you, it gives them hope that maybe, just maybe, God would also be willing to love and accept and change them too. Never feel like you have to hide who you once were. It's a powerful testament, a powerful testimony, not of how far you've come, not of how great you are and how hard you've worked, but of God's grace and forgiveness and transforming power through the Spirit of Christ. And that's the reason we give our testimonies. That's why we're called to give our testimonies. So, Paul, he knew that if you keep telling people who they are, who their best selves are, if you keep reminding them of their true identity in Christ, there's a good chance that they'll, through the Spirit, be able to figure out what to do. Good works flow from what God does in us rather than God's work being a prerequisite in us that flows from good works. God redeemed Israel before giving them the Ten Commandments. He did not choose them because of their righteousness. Deuteronomy 9, 5 and 6 is very clear on this. 
God wasn't like, oh, these are the best people in the world, so I'm going to choose them. And I think if you read through the book of Exodus, you'll, you'll realize that those people weren't the best in the world. <laughs> it was always God's purpose for good works to flow from his grace, even if Israel did not fully grasp that truth. We humans, we have this thing. We, we always want to have a hand, a part to play in our own salvation. And it's hard for us to accept God's free gift and admit that we are absolutely powerless when it comes to saving ourselves. It makes me think of this beautiful quote, which was penned by Ellen White in the devotional God's Amazing Grace page 331. She wrote, our acceptance with God is sure only through his beloved son, and good works are but the result of the working of his sin-pardoning love. They are no credit to us, and we have nothing accorded to us for our good works by which we may claim a part in the salvation of our souls. Salvation is God's free gift to the believer, given to him for Christ's sake alone. The troubled soul may find peace through faith in Christ, and his peace will be in proportion to his faith and trust. He cannot present his good works as a plea for the salvation of his soul. There's no gaining brownie points with God. There's no amount of good that we can do to earn his love. There is no amount of work we can do or achieve to gain salvation. God has blessed, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, included, marked, sealed, and raised us up. And not because we tried so hard or accomplished such good things. It's because he loves us with a love that we can't even comprehend. We can't comprehend it. We've experienced a lot of love in this world. And what that love looks like is usually, if you do something nice for me, if there's something I can gain from this relationship or friendship, then you have my love. We experience it. We see it all around, but then we take it and we place that wickedness upon God. And we believe those things about him and his love. When we look at ourselves, it's hard to believe that God would love or accept us. But that's exactly why he's given us all a new identity in Christ. To help the Ephesian Christians see this more clearly, Paul spent half of his letter reiterating their new identity. Because when you know who you are in Christ, you will know what to do for Christ. And then that just leaves us with another question now. I believe that Paul wrote this letter to Christians that were living in Ephesus in the first century. But I also believe that the Spirit is speaking through this letter 
to us, Christians living in Oklahoma in the 21st century. So, do you know who you are in Christ, dear friends? Members and guests of the Edmund Seventh-day Adventist Church, do you know your new identity in Christ? Because this knowledge is life-changing. It's profound. It will change the way that you talk and think and live and love. I'm here today to echo Paul and to tell you, to remind you that you, dear friends, are blessed and adopted and redeemed. You are forgiven and included and marked. You are sealed. You've been made alive and raised up. That, dear friends, is your identity. That is your identity in Christ. This is how Christ, the creator of all things, sees you. How he talks about you. He is speaking to you, and when God speaks, those words become reality. We were once all bringing darkness into the world, but now we are reflecting light. We were once lost, but now we've been found. Do you realize that you were once a child of Satan? But now you're a child of God. Now, what are you going to do about it? And I think that's the point that Paul eventually gets to in this letter. Yes, you are all these things, but now what? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to act? How are you going to live? How are you going to speak? How are you going to think? How are you going to treat other people? How are you going to love? How are you going to share the good news? So I want to just ask you, and feel free to take part or not. This is between you and God. But I want you to join me in just making a commitment, a commitment to God based upon this letter and some of the things that we just brought out of it. So if you'd like to make a commitment with God, then just repeat after me. Dear God, I thank you for Jesus. I believe my identity is rooted in him. I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit and change me from the inside out. I ask that you produce good works in my life through your spirit. I'll break it down a little bit more moving forward. (laughs) I have to remember to do that at weddings too. I just like start going on, like repeat after me. (laughs) I ask that you produce good works in my life through your spirit. Lord, help me to remember to give credit where credit is due. When I do good works, may I always give you the credit. May my life be the type 
of living sacrifice mentioned in Ephesians 5.2. Amen. So in closing, let me just reiterate. Let me read Ephesians 5.2 again. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And with that, I'm going to invite Heather Preston to come forward as our elder in charge, just to stand at the foot of the steps. I'm going to come down here after the benediction. And so after the benediction, you who wish, you can be dismissed. But if there's anybody here that has any special needs, any special burdens, maybe even a a special praise that you just want to share, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to listen and lift those petitions, lift those praises up to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for hearing and seeing our commitments to you. And as we read Ephesians, specifically that verse, Ephesians 5.2, we ask that you would not only help us to understand its meaning, but that you would also help it to be our experience. Give us the assurance of salvation because we believe in the good news and allow the fruit of that to be good works in our lives. We ask this all in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.